Blog Talk Radio. This is Clarence Cloverleaf, welcoming you to Cloverleaf Radio. Remember, you can always dial in at 646-716-4378. Be sure to watch your language, please, as we are an all-ages program. But we would be delighted if you would sign up for a Blog Talk Radio account, should you so desire, as it will keep you connected with us. And you can always download the newest episodes for free. Hey, this is Denise Poirier. All righty, we're back for another exciting edition of Cloverleaf Radio. I am the host of the most, Jimmy Falcon, and I am not sure where uh, my co-host, Remelina, is. I saw she liked the the little post I made, so I don't know if she's going to be joining us or not. But regardless... I have uh, my first special guest making his return to Cloverleaf Radio, my pal James Jeffrey Paul. How's it going, my friend? Hello. I'm doing fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. How's everything out in Orlando today? Uh, It's very uh, pleasant, very mild weather. It's a good day, good, good Sunday. Well, you know, ever since we got this thing uh, going, I've really been interested in in hearing more about uh, Gordon Stewart Northcott and, uh, of course, how you uh, became interested in him and decided to write uh, your book on him. Well, uh, one day I was visiting my parents, who at the time were living in Tallahassee, Florida, instead of Orlando, the city of my birth. And I went to the library at Florida State University there, and uh, I like to, whenever I go to a library, I like to go to the true crime section, and I found an old book written in the early 30s, I forget the title, and it uh, had a vague reference to Northcott and to, uh, you know, what an awful evil guy he was. And whenever I hear about an obscure crime that's not, or series of crimes that aren't discussed much or that might have been discussed in their day, but that people seem to have forgotten, my interest perks up. So I just started uh, in my spare time going to microfilm libraries and looking up old newspapers, and I was intrigued by the story it contained. And in one uh, San Francisco paper, I believe it was the Chronicle, uh, no, no, wait a minute, scotch that, it was uh, the Los Angeles Times, it had a picture of Northcott, and uh, he had just received a letter from his mom uh, that uh, he, and a news photographer was there, and he looked up and kind of, gave this sneering smile to the news cameraman and he had this awful whenever he smiled sometimes he could just have this really make this really chilling smile and his face looked his angular features just looked distorted his face almost looked rat-like and the way he was staring right out at you it really just chilled me and I thought this is a fascinating and really extravagantly dangerous fellow. And so over the next several years, I started digging and digging and finding more official documentation about his story. 
stuff that um, was revealing a lot more about his case than the newspapers ever printed. Well, I mean, considering the times and the uh, really awful, salacious nature of his crimes, they couldn't print all the details. And uh, I kept on digging until I covered lots of facts that no researcher who'd ever glancingly referred to the case had ever uncovered, and I discovered a lot of what was said about the case was flat-out wrong. So I finally had enough information. I just kept digging and digging for even more stuff, and over the years I kept fleshing out my manuscript and sending it out, and a lot of people liked it, but they said, uh, well, this is very interesting, but we don't have a uh, place for it on our uh, schedule. And then in the summer of 2008, when the news came out that the movie Changeling, which was based on just one teeny little part of the story, uh, was going to be coming out in the fall, that really was, I mean, that was really just uh I've I've never received an electric shock before, you know, I never accidentally touched an electrical outlet with wet hands and then was knocked unconscious by a by an electric shock. But when I first heard that, read that on the internet, I think I received the equivalent of that shock and I just didn't know what to think. And though several uh People, as I said, were interested. Uh, several publishers had said nice things about the manuscript, and one publisher seemed kind of interested in the new idea. I decided to uh, publish it with Ex Libris uh, POD Press, even though I'd been hoping to have it published by a commercial publisher to tie in with the release of the movie. And, you know, it's still selling fairly well eight years after publication and, you know, four times a year I still get royalty checks and, you know, sometimes they're actually, they actually have several digits in them. I mean, it's, I mean, I, uh, what I make from the book is probably what James Patterson or J.K. Rowling make every time they blink their eyes twice, but still for a book about an obscure crime, and to be selling so fairly well eight years after its publication, that's really something. Absolutely. You know, uh, it goes to something that uh, Brian Ward and I have talked about on the past uh, in the show, and that was that, you know, there's a lot of fascination with people like that, but that doesn't necessarily mean you like that or you condone what they did. It's just, you know, there's something that kind of fascinates the normal person about someone who is so strange and odd and can do just horrible things. Leonard Wolf, um, the uh, scholar of Middle Eastern, uh, no, uh, not Middle Eastern, uh, Eastern European history and literature, who did that four decades ago, he did that famous annotated edition of Bram Stoker's Dracula that annotated every, and explained every uh, single obscure reference, historical or cultural reference in it. Um, in 1980, he wrote a book about Gilles de Ray, the um, nobleman from uh, 15th century France who uh, 
devil worshiper and sacrificed and tortured and killed lots of innocent children. Everyone's people say he was the inspiration for the fairy tale Bluebeard, uh, even though unlike the Bluebeard and the fairy tale, he was he didn't kill he wasn't a serial mar- uh, husband who killed all his wives. He was a Satanist who killed children. And uh, he wrote a book called Bluebeard, and uh, at the end of the book he had this, uh, I don't know if the book's still in print, but it was really one of the best historical reconstructions of an, of an ancient criminal case I've ever read, and it was a very thoughtful analysis of evil, the nature of evil, and why it's so fascinating. And he said, I think it was the last line in the text, uh, that Gilles de Ray was a terrible example of what else we are. I think that's one of the best reasons for why we're so fascinated by uh, people who do awful things. They're an example of what else we are. Absolutely. You know, and a lot of... uh... You know, a lot of people are interested in, in the dark history, so to say, and, you know, names of Jack the Ripper and Charlie Manson. And it's just very interesting to uh, people that are more normal than uh, those names. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, you did uh, a play called Miller's Court that you uh, authored. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and uh, how you kind of decided to work on a play instead of uh, another book. Well, I um, have always been fascinated by the case of Jack the Ripper since I was very little, around eight or nine years old. And uh, no one knows who Jack was, although there are teen theories as to his identity. And um, I just, and so many of the fictional books and movies about him are advancing one cockamamie theory about his identity after another. And I thought, well, forget Jack's identity. What kind of a person was he really? And what were his motivations? And of all of his victims, um, there's something very poignant about the case of his last victim, his uh, youngest victim, Mary Kelly, and if if uh, eyewitnesses to be believed, about a couple of hours before she died, Mary was out on the streets and she was accosted by a well-dressed gentleman and followed him, and he followed her back to her little one-room uh, hovel at Finn Miller's Court in the East End, and she was murdered a couple of hours later, and now she could have I guess she could have left her flat and met someone else uh after that, but apparently that was Jack and uh so if they spent all that time together before he killed her, I just wondered, well what happened? And I just thought, Well what if they were both in a confessional mood and they both told each other so much about a lot about their lives and their past and uh so I just um so I wrote the play, thinking, trying to imagine. Well, if they were, to con- if they did talk to each other a lot before he killed her, 
what did they talk about and what were their pasts like? We, we only know a little about Mary's past, and we really know nothing about Jack's. So I just imagined what might have happened. And, you know, it was a release put on in North Carolina and released as an audio CD that's still available. And then two years ago, we put it on in a brief production at a little pub theater in London. And uh, earlier this year, a uh, Scottish amateur theatrical troupe was interesting, was interested in putting it on and entering it in the annual Scottish competition of amateur theatrical groups and uh, a nationwide competition, but the uh, production fell through, but the director of the company said they were hoping to put it on early next year in next year's competition, so that's good news. Absolutely. That sounds very, very cool. And, of course, uh, it's always interesting when you think about something uh, historical like Jack the Ripper and kind of making a reimagining of it or, you know, what you think happened. It's always very interesting to uh, to look into someone's mind on historical events. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have a series of short novels uh, coming out soon uh, from uh, – I'd mentioned that uh, – my Northcott book was published by the subsidy publisher Ex Libris Press, but I have seven contracts with a commercial publisher, uh, Grinning Man Press of Canada, which publishes the Serial Killer Quarterly. And uh, I have, uh, I've been working for a long time on a series of short detective novels uh, that begin in the year 1911 and are about a real, a real rarity in detective fiction, a black female private detective who works for a big famous private detective agency. And the first book in the series is about, uh, she often handles historical, mostly unsolved crimes. And the first book in the series, The Mulatto Ripper, is about her investigating a Jack the Ripper type killer who preyed on black women, mostly women of mixed race, hence the title, in Atlanta in 1911 and 1912. Uh, Some people attribute uh, as many as 20 murders to him. Some think the number's lower, like a dozen or... 17. Uh, there were a lot of similar homicides, and well, of course, since he was never caught, no one knows exactly how many he did. But uh, they say the case was unsolved, but well, my heroine, no one knows until, well, when they read my novel, they'll see my heroine actually solved the case. And uh, I, I have a contract for the first seven short novels in the series, and I've written the first four. Uh, the second one, uh, and uh, the first one, uh, the publisher told me, should be coming out by the end of this month, The Mulatto Ripper. It'll be available as both a tree book and an e-book. And he had said something, uh, Lee Meller, my publisher, about bringing the four, 
the three other books that I've finished thus far out at two-week intervals. I don't know if he's changed that marketing plan or not. But the second book in the series, The Inquisition for Blood, is about a series of voodoo-inspired axe murders of entire families, families, uh, African-American families that were either of mixed race or that had mixed race members in them that took place around uh, the same time as the Ripper murders in 1911 and 1912 in Louisiana and Texas, and that some people were arrested and convicted for some of the murders, though no one's sure if they got the right people or not, but basically the crimes are listed as unsolved, and again, well, my detective, no one knows until now, actually solved them, and the Inquisition for Blood is the second. And the third book is about the tragedy of lynching. It's called Arranging a Lynching, and it takes place in rural North Carolina in the in 1921. Uh, the fourth book, Buffet Flat Blues, is set in the, Harlem in 1929, and it deals mostly with the gay-lesbian demimonde of Harlem at the time. And uh, it has two actual serial killers who uh, have supporting roles in the uh, story, and one is our old friend Albert Fish the cannibal, the child killer. He's a important supporting character in the story. Very interesting. Well, I noticed uh, I let on our our second guest, uh, guest our second guest, uh, Kristen Cipollini is also with us. Mm-hmm. You there, Kristen? How are you? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. We're going. We're talking about. We were talking about Gordon Stewart Northcott. Now we're going to get some Lucky Luciano. Some crazy people here. There, there seems to be an endless supply of uh, subject matter across the uh, true crime board. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you both at Dark History Con. Uh, James Jeffrey Paul, thank you so much again for joining me. It's uh, always great talking to you, with my friend. Thank you so much. Do you want me to hang on, or do you, or, or do you uh, just want to talk with uh, Kristen now, and I'll uh, hang well, up? Well, you know what? I'm not going to hang up on you. I mean, that's up to you, my friend. I'm sure you could add some input in this. I'll, I'll just hang around, and uh, if there's uh, something uh, pertinent, I'll uh, bring it up. I, I, I would like to quickly add, I'm working on a documentary play based on my Northcott book. I don't know... I think I'll be done with it in a few weeks. Uh, it's a documentary-type play using mostly uh, actual lines from the historical record. I'd been working for years on sort of dramatized screenplays of my book and had written umpteen drafts. I, I'd just like to quickly add, but finally I thought, well, why don't I do a documentary-style play on it, and it's working great. So that's the latest Northcott news. Then I'll, Now I'll shut up. <laughs> well, uh, Christian, you know, going uh, starting with you, of course, how did you uh, become involved in working on books about uh, mob-related characters or people related to the uh, mob and stuff? Like that? Uh, 
the short version, I, I don't know. I think it was a long journey where stars just seemed to align. Uh, in fourth grade, I realized I sucked at pretty much everything except writing, and I just didn't know where or what it would, you know, where it would take me. So it was years later. I did uh, moonlighted as a freelance journalist. Everything you name it, entertainment, uh, human interest, and then a little bit of crime. Uh, but before that, my my dad was a narcotics cop, and uh, I grew up in a town where. There were a lot of bookies and things like that, let's just say. So I, I had a little bit of, I don't know, influence or that spark lit and didn't realize it. Um, so anyway, you know, jump forward, go to school, thought I'd hate journalism, ended up loving it. And particularly, I, I was a big history buff and uh, didn't realize how much I loved nonfiction. So, like, you know, early 90s, John Gotti, that was the thing that got me really started I suppose I was just fascinated by this guy, you know, that was in the news all the time, what makes him tick. So, you know, jumps again, all of a sudden, here I am. I found my passion, let's put it that way. Yeah, the Dapper Don. Man, that guy was uh, definitely up there with some of the the big wigs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what... Seeing it, you know, I would pick up copies of the New York Times in in the libraries here. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh area, and I was just I'm like, who is this guy? And then I asked my dad about it, even though he didn't deal a lot with the mob. He was always fascinated by history and the mob. I didn't even realize as a kid, you know, you look at your parent, you're like, whatever, and you know. But it would it, that fire was lit, and that gaudy thing just made me want to consume every book. On the subject, and, you know, not to jump ahead of your questions, but Lucky Luciano, somehow that was one of the thing, the, the subjects that really hooked me. I just didn't know that one day I would become, I don't know, some sort of, I guess, kind of an authority on it, <laughs> I suppose. And I was also uh, noticing uh, that you wrote... A book on uh, Chester Wheeler Campbell, of course, uh, Motor City Hitman. Tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to uh, write a book on him. All right, that that's yeah, that was my first book. Um, I had begun interviewing people involved in true crime. I don't know, you know, six eight years ago, and I, reading a lot more of it. And uh, I kind of set myself to, hey, maybe one day I'll find a subject that hasn't been really written about, and I'll do it myself, maybe get a book deal. Who knows? Uh, you know, I just felt like this is where I was supposed to go. So one day I, I'm searching around for what I collect are original um, press photos, relics, crime scene photos, and, and boom, here's this mean-looking guy from 1975, and all it said was Chester Campbell, Detroit murderer. So I I win this thing on an auction for like eight bucks. It gets here, and there are press notes on the back, you know, talking a little bit about this dude. So I ended up doing research. I called my lawyer, who happens to be from Detroit, and wow, that just set it in motion. We, uh, we managed to find, oh my, well, a book's worth. 
Um, and I'll never forget my publisher saying, hey, I'll give you a book deal, but there isn't any way you're going to find enough on this guy. And uh, we did. So it turned out really, really well. Uh, fascinating subject. Yeah, that was my first book. Wow. And, of course, uh, you and uh, you're going to be joining a bunch of other great people, including James Jeffrey Paul and myself at Dark History Con. And this is uh, your first time there. So uh, what are you uh, looking forward to about DHC, and uh, what's uh, the future got going for you? Well, I look forward uh, to this because, yeah, it's my first time there, and uh, uh, the uh, the uh, premiere uh, event was apparently very well received and this year it's just an amazing group of of people and vendors and everything i'm i'm fascinated like a fan to see it all and i'm really excited because my uh friend Seth Ferranti is going to be there he and i are going to have a table together um it's uh this should be neat hopefully i get to meet a lot of cool people and uh um you know we'll have our swag there for anybody who's interested, but yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm excited. I have big year. This was this is uh, pretty hectic, chaotic in a good way. Absolutely, it's uh, it was a great time last year. It was my first year, and I'm really looking forward to doing it again. And I look forward to seeing both of you fine gentlemen there and uh, talk that will more be about our uh, about our love for the dark history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah, uh, I definitely. Again, thank you both so much. Uh, oh, go ahead, Christian. I'm sorry. No, no. I was just going to say I, I I look forward to it. I'll I'll definitely uh, have the comic books and the books there, and you know everybody can come up and say hello, and then I'll wander around and say hello to everybody. Nice. Well, I look forward to it, gentlemen. Thank you again so much for joining me, and uh, both you enjoy the rest of your days. Thank you so Thanks much for having us. Absolutely. All righty, everyone. Well, I know, uh, you know, looking ahead schedule-wise, we are going to be back August 10th with contractor Katrina Kidd from uh, DIY's Texas Flip and Move, and August 11th, actor and director Christopher St. Booth, one of the great uh, guests of the upcoming SILCON. He is also going to be joining us on the 11th, so we look forward to talking to you then, guys, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great night.